The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Five games in the NFL in Week 10 came down to game-winning field goals. EJ was, of course, at one of them up in Seattle for Seahawks Commanders. And this game was, uh, or really this week in general, was so awesome that that Seahawks and Commanders game didn't even make our list that we're talking about today because we have so much more to discuss. And uh, contrary to the desire of our audience, we can't do three-hour podcasts every single Monday or we will die. So uh, we narrowed it down to the five best games of Week 10, at least the Sunday part of Week 10, that we're going to talk about. EJ, how you feeling? Have you have you recovered from the weather that you endured? Sure, it wasn't that bad. Our seats were under cover, but it was chilly. There's a nice, nice wind blowing off the water yesterday. Uh, players had to deal with it as well, but uh, no shortage of good games to put on the slate this week. In fact, we probably put a couple on the cutting room floor that on any other given week would have ended up on the final agenda. But the ones we've got are high quality, and that's really the way I feel about the week overall. I was watching the early slate before I headed up to that game, and I thought, well, I don't know, we might have five in the early slate we could talk about. And then, you know, nonetheless, the late slate. So good week of football. Uh, fun to get out, see those teams compete, get to see Sam Howell in person for the first time. That was cool. And we've got a lot of good football to go over. Reminder, by the way, that we're recording this on Monday before Monday Night Football, uh, before the Broncos and Bills game. So we're, we're not going to get to talk about them because that game hasn't happened yet. We do sincerely hope that they've learned that uh, James Cook is allowed to touch the ball, but <laughs> we'll talk about that on Thursday in the Bengals uh, Bengals Ravens TNF game. Uh, until then, we're just we're hoping to see the Bills actually play like the Bills. Uh, we're going to start off with uh, speaking of the Bengals, talking about the Bengals who just went down to the fight in CJ Strouds in Houston. Uh, I, I think. At this point, there's not much else we can possibly say about C.J. Stroud. He is not just a top-five quarterback, or at least playing like a top-five quarterback in his own conference. He's playing like a top-five quarterback in the NFL. And for a rookie to do that on the road against a contending team, against a great defensive coordinator, you know, down Nico Collins, what else can you possibly say about this kid? I mean, he's he is resetting expectations for what a rookie quarterback is capable of in the NFL. And we've seen some great rookie years. You know, mm -hmm. Justin Herbert was phenomenal. Uh, Andrew Luck was phenomenal. Even once upon a time in Houston, Deshaun Watson, before he tore his ACL in his rookie year, was, I mean, that might have been the best he ever played, was in that first half of his rookie year. 
And yet watching CJ Stroud every week, I still think that Stroud's playing better than even Deshaun did at the height of his powers in Houston. Like this is, this is not normal. And when you juxtapose what Stroud's doing to, you know, when we were watching Bryce Young on, on Thursday night, my God, like they couldn't look any more different than they do. Like, it's amazing to me how, how catastrophic potentially that decision for Carolina has ended up looking at, at how good Stroud has been in Houston. Like I, I never in a million years would have imagined the difference being this wide landing spot is massive, but it's much more than that. And we're running out of superlatives about CJ Stroud by the week. <laughs> First it was, man, he's, he's, he's coming along faster than we thought for a rookie. Then it was, I think he's the best of the rookie class. And then it was, man, is he playing better than a bunch of established starters? And then it was, oh man, he's playing as well as established veteran starters. He's playing like over the last two weeks, borderline elite football for the NFL. Forget rookie, forget, you know, landing spot, any of that stuff. And when you say resetting rookie expectations, he's obliterating them. The fact that he, people are, oh, he's going to win offensive rookie of the year. Hey man, that was so last week. Like he's going to be, <laughs> in position for offensive MVP. Like he could be in that conversation. And to even say that is ridiculous for a rookie quarterback or has been historically. And if you keep going up, it's like, where's, where's the ceiling? Cause it almost kind of feels like as well as he's playing, he hasn't hit a ceiling yet. And that's like borderline terrifying. Yeah, in the preview show, we talked about how the Texans just figured out that they don't have to go run, run, pass, and that they can let him actually throw. Like, the Tampa game was the first time they did that. And then it's like, oh, he threw for almost 500 yards and five touchdowns. What happens if we do it again? Oh, he beat the Bengals on the road. Like, even the Texans, for the first half of the year, were coaching like, we're not sure uh, what we can get away with here. And every time they throw more at him, he's just like, okay, cool. Like, got it. Like, no Nico Collins, fine. On the road against Cincy, fine. Cool. Like, let me let me outduel unquestionably a top three quarterback in the league on the road in a high pressure game because we're trying to keep pace with Jackson on the division. Like, it's it's just unreal. Like the fact that Joe Burrow had a mostly normal Joe Burrow game. Like, obviously, there were some struggles. He was under pressure a lot. The pressure uh, pressure allowed percentage was 47%, second, second highest in the NFL, only behind the Giants this week. So Burrow was under a lot of heat, but he still made typical Burrow plays, you know, like the one where he kind of rolled out to his left and uncorked that ball to Jamar for a long touchdown. And, like, he did have the two picks, but the fact that Joe Burrow can look like Joe Burrow and Stroud still looked like the best quarterback on the field like I I just I have no way to process this because I didn't even think it was possible and I loved CJ Stroud as a prospect but you'd be lying anybody would be lying if they said that that was what they expected nobody expected that no the fact that CJ Stroud CJ Stroud looked like Joe Burrow for the first mm -hmm two and a half quarters of this game. There were just lasers everywhere. It's not like Burrow had a down day and CJ looked great. They looked like each other. 
they just threw so many lasers. It could have been a Star Wars movie, both of them. <laughs> and until about midway through the third quarter, when the wheels came off for interceptions with both of them, they traded interceptions within a couple of possessions. Until then, you couldn't have told if you took the colors off the uniform in black and white film, sort of grayed out the faces, you would have been like, that looks like Burrow carving up a defense. That looks like Burrow in terms of ball placement and accuracy, throws on time. This is all within the structure of the offense, too. A lot of times when we see rookie starters excel, even some of the stuff Anthony Richardson was doing before he got hurt that we were really excited about in the first month, that wasn't on schedule stuff. Some of it was. But a bunch of it was bust plays. He's huge. He can run through sack attempts. And then he uncorks a big arm. And you're like, wow, that's a lot of potential. When he grows into it, like Stroud's already in the he's grown into it portion. He's standing in the pocket, carving up very good defenses with the kind of accuracy that you would expect from the guy across the line that he's playing against. That's not normal. Like how not normal that is. We All of us that like C.J. Stroud love C.J. Stroud. If you ask almost anybody what their pre-draft rank on C.J. Stroud was, it's below a guy like Burrow. Yesterday, yeah. in a game that counted, they stood across the line and played basically mirror image football for like two and a half quarters. That's stupid. I think the fact that he's able to elevate like a receiving core that we liked, like we liked Nico Collins, we liked, sure. you know, the separation ability of Tank Dell. We liked Schultz as like a safety blanket tight end. I mean, we loved Damian Pierce going to this game, but we liked Singletary. The fact that he can take them, you know, Noah Brown as your wide receiver three or, or Robert Woods as your as your old man veteran wide receiver four. Like we liked the supporting cast, but there was no like clear top tier like game breaking weapon but he's elevated this group to being like one of the, the three or four most productive passing games in the entire NFL. I mean, they had 17 explosive plays yesterday without Nico Collins and Nate, Nate Tice put out a note that they had the most explosive plays for an offense in a single game or fourth most explosive plays for an offense in a single game since 2000 Stroud wasn't even alive. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like, it's it's not that he's it's not just that he's great. It's the fact that he's elevating good players to be great. And it's so rare for quarterbacks to be able to do that. And honestly, one of the last ones that we saw do it was Joe when he took him to the Super Bowl in year in year two, you know, getting Jamar Chase and all of a sudden they're unstoppable. Like what happens if you get Malik neighbors <laughs> to CJ Stroud? Like, what do you do? <laughs> like Nothing. This this class of wide receivers, and we'll talk plenty about this in the draft coverage, is special. And if you've watched our draft coverage for the last three years, you know that we've been saying that year over year. Wow, this is a really good wide receiver class. Wow, this is another really good wide receiver class. Wow, this wide receiver class isn't quite as good as the last two years, but it's still pretty good. This wide receiver class coming out is that good or better. It is a special, special class. It has stars. It has depth trying to just determine like a top 10, which is normally a decently fine exercise is going to be excruciating. So it's likely they're going to get a game breaking wide receiver, even if they don't pick one up high, but let's be honest. We weren't talking about Noah Brown. Noah Brown was the guy that was on the Cowboys that moved to the Texans and 
Noah Brown over the last two games is 13 receptions on 14 targets, 11 of those for first downs, 325 yards and a TD. So suddenly he is just another Ohio State wide receiver that's kicking ass in the pros. Like nobody was talking about Noah Brown. Noah Brown looks like an alpha game breaker over the last two weeks. That's not Noah Brown. Like all credit to Noah Brown. He's a very good wide receiver, comes from a very good program. He played with Dak. He wasn't, he had some games, but not like this. This is, they brought him in for one thing and one thing only. Like they, I swear to God, they sat him down first day he got there and said, Noah, you're going to run the deep crosses for us. You're not going to do anything else. You're going to run deep crosses all day long and you're going to be wide ass open. You know why? Because you're going to be running the deep cross and that's always wide ass open. Like we're going to call flood 10 times a game. Guess what, buddy? That's your concept. And you're going to catch it over and over and over again. If, if we need to beat man coverage, we'll go to tank Dell, you know, but like everything else, like you are the zone beater, buddy, get ready. And they've done it. Like they've fed him the ball and he's open every single time, like without fail. And I think a lot of defenses come into the game and go, okay, who are we going to stop? Well, we got Nico. Oh, Tank's really coming on. We got to worry about their running game. They got a couple of talented running backs. You know, they got Dalton Schultz. He can come on if he needs to. Like, okay, these are, you know, these are the top two. Oh, yeah, they got Noah Brown. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, they got Robert Woods. We're not, we're not worried about those guys. Like, defensive coordinators who are looking at recent film for the next few Texans opponents are going to be like, huh, what do we got for Noah Brown? Like I did not come into this game at the beginning of the year thinking we were going to have to stop Noah Brown, but if we let Noah Brown do Noah Brown things, we're going to lose. And that's, that is directly a reflection on Stroud and Slowick. It's, it's not a conversation we expected to be having at this point of the year. On the other side of the ball, another thing I didn't expect about the Texans, you know, we, we, we like, Sheldon Rankins, or at least going into the year, like we we like <laughs> he's had a very solid career. You know, yeah. we like Jonathan Grenard. We loved Will Anderson as a prospect, but we didn't think that the sum of these parts was going to be an elite pass rush. It's a bunch of dudes we like, and and one dude that we loved, right? Mm-hmm. But D'Amico Ryan's and his staff have elevated again, kind of like. I don't want to say like a ragtag group, but like kind of close to that, you know, they've elevated this group of guys we liked into being just legitimate world beaters. Like, you know, I, I made the point earlier, 47% pressure rate, second highest in the league this week. They had 32 pressures as a team. Both of Burroughs uh, uh, interceptions were because of pressure. You know, on the first one, Sheldon Rankins absolutely demolished the right guard. I can't remember the name of the right guard for the Bengals right now, but, like he beat him on an inside spin and and like you could see Burrow like, oh shit. And he, he kind of sailed it over the top of uh, uh of his tight end and got picked. And then in the second one, Grenard just completely collapsed Orlando Brown and flushed him. And then he threw the pick in the end zone. Um, but like this Bengals offensive line just got the shit kicked out of him the entire day by this Texans front. And again, it's one of those like, they're spending no money on this group and they're getting top of the league type production out of it what happens when they spend in march and they bring in even more dudes like this is already a really good team and they have crazy cap space they have an elite young quarterback 
like the guys that they have to pay, like it, it's not going to be game breaking for for their wallet. This is only the beginning for Houston. Like if they can do this to 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 Cincinnati now, what are they going to do in twenty twenty four and twenty twenty five? Like that's that's what's really exciting for me as a Texans fan. Like I I have no illusions about us winning the Super Bowl this year. Like we're not going to, but next year, <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> It's, yeah, it it's could not be that a, far off. Could be a very year two Burrow type ascension. And uh, Robert Mays put out a thing saying that he mentioned on his podcast that he thinks Nick Casario, you know, really deserves GM of the year consideration because of a lot of these, uh, you know, lower profile moves that have just hit and hit and hit and hit. And it is a combination of getting Stroud and getting D'Amico Ryans for sure and his staff. Like those things certainly, but that's what a good GM does is match the roster to the needs certainly and to the coaching staff. And it's all coming up roses right now. Offensive side. We talked about a lot defensive side. They brought in Devin Singletary as a free agent. We were like, yeah, whatever. Like Texans found a running game yesterday with Devin Singletary. I was like, what? 30 carries 150 yards. In this economy, like in in the modern <laughs> NFL, somebody got 30 carries and went off for 100 and a half. I mean, not to mention it was Devin Singletary, who I think is a nice complimentary back, but never had that kind of success as a lead back in, in Buffalo. Like there's just surprises all over this roster. Rankin's, you know, coming on late in year 11 pressures yesterday from an interior spot. That's that's edging up towards like Dexter Lawrence numbers, which is that would have been heresy if you'd said to anyone. I think still, if you say to most NFL fans, like, I don't know, Rankins had a, you know, borderline Dexter Lawrence. I'd be like, no, get 11 pressures in one game rushing from the interior. Three sacks, too. Right. Like that. That is exactly that kind of a performance. Again, is that something we predicted out of this group, out of that side of the ball? No, we said, look, they got Will Anderson. He's going to give him some rush. Got some other young guys that can help a little bit, but they feel more like complimentary players. They're still, they're a year away. They're going to need to get another big threat, kind of like what the 49ers just did, right? They're going to need to add another end. I think the Raiders are in the same spot with Crosby. They need to add somebody to take pressure off him because he's getting a you know, just getting the lights double teamed out of him right now. Like that's the way we thought Will Anderson was going to be. And all of a sudden, like Grenard is exploding and Rankins is having games like this. Will's still been great. It's not like Will's been some wilting daisy. Like he's still in there creating pressure the way we thought he would. But again, every move the Texans have made, it all looks like a positive right now. Overall, uh, I'm on cloud nine. You know, again, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't think a deep run is in the cards this year. Um, I think they'll make it. I think they'll make the playoffs, but boy, it's tall order to go to Kansas city in January and say like, Oh yeah, we're going to win. Like, eh, probably not. But to the jump start that this franchise has had is, is just incredible. So, uh, you know, Cincinnati, great game. Never want to do that again because it was a heart attack. I, I would prefer to not see that team again in January because I do think that Burrow will make us pay in round two. Uh, but it was fun the first time. It was, well, I shouldn't say fun. It was nerve-wracking the first time. I'm just happy we got out of there with the win. Uh, Lions Chargers, the other team that I follow closely because I work for them. I'm, I'm so very frustrated, EJ. I really am. And yeah. partially because I'm literally working on an episode 
on the Chargers pass rush right now on the on the package when they got Bosa and Mack and Thule out there and they just absolutely demolish everybody when they do that. They had 40 pressures last week and I was like, let's do an episode of that because like one of the one of the things the Chargers have been really good at this year is getting after the passer. Then they go up against Detroit where Goff has an average time to throw of 2.49 seconds, gets the ball out incredibly quickly. And even when the pass rushers for the Chargers won, the ball was gone. Like they, there was nothing they could do. Like it was just out. And, and Goff just put on a master class. Like he found the open receiver every single time immediately. So decisive, so accurate, you know, set his guys up for yards after catch. Like it was, it, it was one of Goff's best games as a lion. And that's saying a lot because he's had a lot of really good games as a lion. But I was so frustrated watching that game back because I'm like, even when they win, it doesn't matter. Like they combined for nine total pressures because the ball was out so quickly. Last week they had 40. And it wasn't just that the Lions offensive line played well. Obviously they did, especially in the run game. But it's the fact that Goff knew going into it, like I cannot set my guys up for failure by holding the ball for three seconds. I, I can't. Has to be out. And he stuck to it. Every single drop back ball was out. And as a defense, it's got to be the most frustrating thing in the world to play against that because you can do everything right as a pass rusher and still lose. And at, at some point, and this hurts to say as somebody who like covers the team and watches every single game, at some point, it's, it's, it's unacceptable that USC and the Chargers look like the same team. And I think we're at that point. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a dagger. I feel for Khalil Mack because a lot of his time in Chicago was the same thing. He was the dominant edge rusher, and you could see teams' game plans. It was like everything's going away from him. If we go at him in the run, we're going to triple team him and frustrate the hell out of him, and everything else rolls the other way. Like we're going to roll to the other side. We're going to get the ball out quickly. Like, he would rush and rush and rush and the ball would be gone or he'd get no help. And now he goes to the Chargers and he's like, all right, I got help. <laughs> we got a great blitz package. Let's go do this. And golf's like, eh, maybe not. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, Matt Waldman put out a great tweet today. He said, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, Jared Goff was Sean McVay's puppet and couldn't handle the blitz. And uh, this is a combination. This is a great, synergistic piece of football between the young offensive line of the lions that they assembled. You know, I remember putting out tweets two years ago, like whoever they get a quarterback is going to be well protected, you know, thinking at that point they might move on from Goff because Goff had not continued to improve to get to be where he is now, but they invested a lot in that line, a lot of high draft picks, a lot of money. And they had a very good young group that was playing cohesively. Then you get, you know, Ben Johnson, and Jared Goff vibing, and it's the three groups, right? We've got the offensive line, we've got the quarterback who understands it, and we've got an offensive play caller who is saying, we know what the Chargers are going to bring, and we're going to design a game with plenty of hots, plenty of outs. We are not going to make you hold the ball and be a hero for three seconds. And all three of those phases kind of working together, and you get what you got yesterday, which is a super well-oiled Lions pass game that, despite a very good pass rush, rarely – looked under pressure you said it under you know single digit pressures on the day um against that group that's a tremendous achievement and it takes all three of those parts working in concert and the lions got that yesterday strangely enough you know the chargers weren't helpless in this one. <laughs> like on the offensive side of the ball like when again you flip the script watching herbert throw you know absolute 
rips. Some of those throws that Herbert made yesterday are going to end up on like his career highlight record, not the the season highlight record. He was driving dots. I mean, that is the Justin Herbert that we've been expecting. And we've been saying the same thing about Burrow for a long time. Obviously, Burrow's been, quote unquote, back now for two and a half or three weeks. But Herbert hurt his finger. He's been wearing a splint. It's definitely been, you know, holding him down. He either got used to it or it's healed up or both because that was vintage Justin Herbert. Sounds weird to say vintage because he's not that old, but like (laughs) that was game breaking arm talent on time on target. And to me, it just ended up feeling like an NFL game of horse, right? Justin would go back and rip one to Keenan and then golf would come out and he'd rip one to Amon Ra and then they'd switch and then he'd come out and go, Oh yeah, anything you can do, I can do better. He'd rip another one to Keenan and they'd switch in and then golf would come back and rip another one to Amon Ra. They're like, Oh yeah. And it just felt like two shooters going around the court going, all right, I, you know, between the legs, behind the back, one legged, you know, put your hand over your eye, hit the three. So, does that make that, uh, does that mean David Montgomery is the dude who pulls up in the middle of the game and drains one from half court and walks away? Cause that's basically yeah. what he did behind his back <laughs> with a nice little, whoop, little referee toss behind the back from half court that that movie hit in the middle of that run was look, I watched a lot of David Montgomery, you know, pre-draft when he was in Iowa state. And then of course he got drafted by the bears. I got to see a lot of very good runs sort of, I don't want to say wasted, but spent in an offense that wasn't otherwise very supportive, but you could see that he had all that. He had those flashes. And then between year one and year two, he came back and he specifically worked on his speed because that was a knock great power, good vision runs with runs with toughness, but can't break things away. Came back, dropped a little bit of weight, really focused on, you know, power speed explosion and started to rip off longer runs and he still had those moves and people said oh he's just a between the tackles guy right and it was like eh, you're not really watching him. he's got that in the tank and so a little bit of a role reversal with him and gibbs yesterday in terms of pretty much everything <laughs> the long breakaway yeah. run was was montgomery the goal line touches were good like it, it just you know but that's an adaptable offense all the way around in terms of hey we got to throw it quicker to get away from the blitz hey we're gonna you know we're gonna leverage our playmakers hey we're gonna switch it up if they're ready for one thing we're gonna you know we're gonna hit them with the hook and it just all worked the chargers came out there good enough to win in that game when you say you're frustrated i i like get it a hundred percent because i look Alex Katzen was with me at the game yesterday. He also covers the Chargers and he was on his phone the whole time. And he's like, he kept holding it up over his shoulder, like, no, look what happened. But it was this battle back and forth, like, hey, they tied it up, they, you know, and they played toe to toe against one of the top offenses in the league. And they looked just like them. They looked like a top offense and they were good enough to win. But on balance, the Lions were better. Like the Lions defense was better than the Chargers defense by enough that they come away with a big road victory. Yeah. I mean, the first couple punts and, and the early pick, even though all those were super early in the game, you know, by the lions defense, like those first couple stop or three stops total honestly might've been the difference because they scored on every single drive from like mid second quarter on. They only had nine possessions in this game. Mm-hmm. And still put up 421 yards of offense. They have an average drive length of 46 yards. Like, are you kidding me? That's your average drive is 46 yards. And and the only two stops they had were in the first quarter and then and then the, the pick early on. But you know, to be 50% on third down for the game, to be a hundred percent on fourth down for the game, to be perfect in the red zone, to only give up, you know, a, a few pressures themselves, no sacks. 
uh, only had three penalties and to lose. Like, it's just, it's, it's so USC. Like, why, why does this always happen in LA? Like, I don't, I don't get it. It's just, <laughs> ah, must, must be an allergy to defense, but you talked about the fourth down tries. Both teams combined were seven of eight on fourth down. And there were three total punts split between the two teams. Like, both teams were just firing on offense yesterday. It was a fun game to watch. But, yeah, in the end, if you're a Chargers fan, you know, there was just resignation on Alex's face. He's like, yeah, so they they, they lost. And I was like, eh, yeah, I'm sorry, man. It looks like they put up a really good game. And then when I got home, I watched the tape. And I was like, damn, they did. They put up a really good game. It was on most weeks, that is good enough to win. But especially the Chargers, they certainly have an aura to overcome. If it's not injuries, it's fading down the stretch, either in games or the season. And it's hard to see a game that well played through that much of it and not come away with W. I also want to give the Lions credit um, for bouncing back from the Ravens absolutely destroying them. <laughs> I think it's so yeah. easy to have a loss like that and and to have like doubt creep in or to just be like, oh my God, like, you know, may, maybe, maybe we do have problems, you know, yeah. but to come back out and say like, no, we're, we're just going to, we're going to burn the tape. We're not even going to bother with it. Like the Ravens are good. Cool. Like good on them, but we know what we are. Like we, we know that we're going to be a 12, 13 win team. We're just going to treat that as as just kind of a weird, wonky game that didn't go our way. You know, we 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 had a gauntlet of a schedule that was on the road. Fine, fuck it, whatever. To come back out, almost like that Ravens game never happened, and to just mm-hmm. immediately be, uh, for lack of a better term, the Lions again. Mm-hmm. Sounds weird to have that be like a a term for a good team now, but it is like they, the lions looked like the lions. And the fact that when I say the lions look like the lions is a good thing and not a bad thing really tells you how far this team has come. But uh, I, I really like that Dan Campbell kind of kept them focused and didn't let that Ravens loss uh, derail what has otherwise been a, a pretty stellar season for them. Great credit to Campbell as head coach of this team that they have that ability. And it looked pretty normal there weren't a lot of histronics about you know we got to get back up there it was like no we got to do our thing right we got to do our thing that we've been doing since i got here since training camp since the off-season workouts we got to do our stuff and if we do our stuff we can win the game and that's actually a pretty good segue to the next game we're going to talk about because uh the head coach of one of those teams went to the podium and said very much that and it gives me faith that that team is going to be able to come out and rebound pretty quickly i mean it was kind of both of them honestly because the jaguars didn't do quote unquote their stuff but the 49ers did do their stuff i.e you know just play like a bat out of hell along the defensive line their defensive line was amazing you know brock purdy was decisive and and took advantage of his matchups because everybody was back on the field trent was back debo's back kittle's healthy i use still i cmc still cmc like he had all the infinity stones, right? And the defensive line was rocking and rolling. And the Niners looked like the Niners. They got back to doing what they do well. And all of a sudden, they looked again like a dominant football team. Who knew, right? And I I, I, I want to treat this with, with, with nuance because I did 
you know, put out the tweet like predicting like, hey, they're going to be in a midseason skid. And they did go on a midseason skid. But what I also said was, even with that skid, they're going to be fine. So they're going to be fine by January. They're going to go on a run. They're probably going to make the championship game and we'll see what happens there. But like football is a game of matchups and the matchups they had in the middle of the season were not necessarily favorable ones, especially when they were banged up. Like it's not a deep football team, but when they have all their dudes, they're pretty damn hard to beat. And they finally got all their dudes back. And so as long as they stay healthy, yeah, they're going to they're gonna be fine. They're going to go on a run. The, the three-game you know, losing streak in the middle of the season is going to just, just look like oh, an aberration, right? But I, I feel like there's, uh, there's such a reactionary culture to, to football where everybody's like, oh, the Niners are bad. Oh, no, the Niners are good again. And it's like, no, the Niners are still what the Niners were. It's just they ran into some really tough matchups schematically without all their guys. They got you know, they got beat, but going forward the rest of the year, they match up pretty well with everybody else they're going to play. And the other best team in the NFC, Philly, from a schematic schematic perspective, I think they match up with Philly really well. So I think you can, you can look at the mid part of their schedule and say, that's rough for them, while also having the opinion <laughs> they're going to go on a run because football or the NFL season's really long and it's a game of matchups and two things can be true at once. And I just want people to realize like that that you can you can look at a, a game against the Browns and be like, ooh, they're probably not gonna win that one. And also look at a game against the Eagles and be like, I feel great about it. This is the overlap of of like two windows, right? And this was for the Niners, their Lions game against the Chargers. This was the game after the Ravens game where they got back to being themselves and were able to beat a really good opponent. And for the Jaguars, they're just in a different phase, right? A different part of the mm-hmm. roller coaster. And this was their game against the Ravens, for lack of a better term. Um, and, you know, Doug Peterson came to the podium afterwards. And I, I really respect him for giving this answer. He got asked by beat Rotor, like, hey, what, you know, basically what happened? And he went to his notebook. He pulled out his notebook. And you can tell someone he marks up, like, to take to halftime to say, okay, what do we need? And he's like, all right, first drive. This happened. This happened. We missed a block here. You know, we took a sack. We ended up punting. Next drive, you know, three and out, we punt. Next drive, you know, miss assignment, got ran the wrong route, like, airbook, you know, gave up a gave up a pressure, like that drives did. And he's like, these are all the things that we show our guys that we can correct, right? The Niners played good football and we didn't. We didn't execute. So that, you know, we lost our chance to win. And these are the points that we're going to go back. We're not going to say, hey, this is how you beat the Niners. That's over. We're going to go back and say, this is how you make sure that pressure doesn't end up in Trevor's face. This is how you, you know, correct that route. So two guys don't end up in the same place. And I, I thought it was a very sort of honest and illuminating answer. He wasn't treating it like state secrets. He wasn't doing the, the, I don't know. Did you see the Belichick press conference, which is classic Belichick press conference after the Frankfurt game? No. Oh God. Uh, you should watch it. You should find it and watch it. It is. It is, is, is he just done. He's just over. He's it. so done. He's beating the hell out of the microphone. He's just abusing the microphone like up and down and, and completely like ashen, surly, grumpy, not answering. I mean, you know, it's it's the and I get it. It's frustrating when you're a coach and you worked all week, a lot of hours to get your stuff together. And, and you know, your team does not come out 
and perform. There's been a lot of that for Belichick this season, and it's it's severely frustrating. But he he was the petulant toddler on you know on the podium. And look, Doug did the same thing. He put in a lot of hours with his staff. He had a good plan. His team didn't execute, and instead he said, "Hey, this is why. Like this is why, and this is why. Like specifics, write down every drive, and said these are the things that we can control that we're going to go back and work on and get better." And you know, so again. Do I have faith that they get a Lions game, a you know, comeback game against the Chargers next week after their Ravens game, for lack of a better term, against getting whooped by the 49ers who were, you know, coming back to full strength. Trent Williams, we we knew that him playing was a major difference maker because he's that kind of player, but like even on one ankle, the difference in the 49ers offense when Trent's on the field and the things that they can do and the security that Brock Purdy feels is like night and day from their down period where they were losing games. Purdy was amazing in this one. I want to give him credit. We talk about all the guys coming back. Purdy's been in the lineup and they haven't won. Purdy played well enough yesterday against a good team that I think he. it is one of those games that will help move the needle for people that don't believe in Brock Purdy from he's a guy you can win with or he's a guy that you can win with in this system to he's a guy you can win because of. Like his throw in the grasp to Kittle is like, if you haven't oh, seen it, go it watch nuts. it. It like, I don't know how that occurred. And he's going to see gamble. the far hash one that he threw to, to IU against, against the inverted Tampa two, like far hash whole shot. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. Like, like this, all right. This, was, this is the best game he played all year. I was yeah. like, damn. Like I think he heard all the criticisms of people that are like, (laughs) they're not pushing the ball down the field. Like, ah, he's throwing big picks and big spots. And like, he came out just looking mad at the world and just started slinging it down the field. And I'm like, holy shit. Like, and we, we had seen him do that in some games before, like the Tampa game last year comes to mind where where he hit like CMC down the boundary. We're like, okay, he's pressing it vertically more than Jimmy ever did. And this was the first game in a while where I'm like, he's pissed. Like he's legitimately pissed right now. Like he was he was out there with something to prove, and like you could tell he was locked in because pressure didn't affect him. Like the the, the times that Jags that the Jags did get pressure, fun fact, they actually had more pressures as a team than the Niners did, but they only had one sack compared to the Niners get five. Uh, uh, if only somebody like, had said that they were close on the pass rush but didn't get home. Oh, it was it was miserable watching this defense because they were they were on him they were on him like the kittle throw all day nowhere to step into they were on him and he still got it out and it was just it was a remarkable performance i think it was brock's best game of the year like i don't even know if it was statistically the best but like on tape that i i had more like stank faces watching brock on tape this week than i have all year long because there were some throws from like wow he just didn't give a shit in this one like he was going for it he gambles. It's part of his game. And you're going to have some plays with him every week that are like, no, 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 no. Yes. Yes. Like that is, that is the Brock Purdy like archetype right now. It's great. He can be on schedule. I'm not saying that, you know, he's, uh, you know, the complete gambler you can't win with, but there are definitely some plays where the offensive staff are holding their breath, go Brock, get rid of it, Brock, get rid of it, Brock, get rid of it. And he finally gets rid of it. Like, to the third read deep down the field with a guy hanging off his jersey and they're like no oh okay 25 yards sweet like let's go and he played that way yesterday and the jags on the other side 
I can't come up with a better way to describe it than just out of tune. Like they played yeah. hard. They came out with effort, but there were so many like near misses pressures leading to turnovers, like could have been tight plays. I totally get Peterson's and not even frustration, just assessment at the podium. Like we were, we were right there. Like these are correctable things. This is not like the coach coming to the podium saying, I don't have any answers. He had every answer. Right. And he's like, a lot of this is execution. And sometimes that feels really hollow when a coach says it. But when a coach says, if we execute the block better here, Trevor doesn't get pressure in his face here. He doesn't throw that pick. Like it feels very direct and directive. And I think that's a great credit to the Jacksonville coaching staff. Um, certainly in stark contrast to their predecessors who nobody likes to talk about that we can prepare this team to win. And we just came out and had a day where we were out of sync. We were out of sorts and we missed a lot of plays that could have kept us in this game sort of repeatedly. And that led to stalled drives, turnovers, things that really hurt us. And they just outdistanced us because they were in tune. I mean, you had a sack where, you know, Trevor, uh, you know, pre-snap looked like he got into a, a screen, you know, uh, out, out of a look that they liked a screen and everybody heard it except the guy who was supposed to catch it, Jamal Agnew. So he's going out there blocking and Trevor looks and he sees five guys blocking and nobody turning around to catch the ball. And he's like, oh shit. And so he just had to eat the sack. Right. But like they had the look, like they had mm-hmm. numbers on it. If, if like Agnew just turned around or I think it was Agnew, the receiver out there, if he just turned around, and caught the ball <laughs> like they probably would have had a really big gain out of it. They had another sack where the left guard just was on the wrong count. You know, he thought they were on two. They were on one ball got snapped. He didn't move. Hargrave blew right by him. And you could see like, like he didn't expect the ball to be snapped. I'm like, that's just procedural stuff, man. That's like, that's, 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 can you listen in the huddle? You know, can, can you get the right count? when Trevor's rattling it off and and they just came out and just looked completely discombobulated. They looked, it's interesting how they looked prepared on paper, but not prepared on the field. Like the calls they made, the calls they made were good. I would agree. Players just weren't executing it. And I, at the end of the day, obviously that's on the coaches. Like you got to get your players prepared, but I didn't think the game plan was bad. I just thought the execution was horrific. And sometimes that that does fall on the players, right? Because, again, you can put players in good spots. And it wasn't that they didn't. They did. They put players in good spots. You could see how that would work against that team, against that coverage, you know, on that down. And sometimes, you know, players will say, it. look, we just got to make plays. It's unfortunately usually right when their coach is about to get fired. Like, hey, man, we got to support the guy. You know, we got to do our deal. This isn't that. But at some point, like, you know, you can't listen for the guard in the huddle. <laughs> he, he's yep. got to he's got to pick up the right cadence. You can't. Uh, there was one in the Sunday night game last night with the Jets where two tight ends went out to block and nobody turned their back to catch the screen. And they both tight ends. You could see looked at each other like, man, I thought I was supposed to be out here. I thought I was supposed <laughs> to be out here. And it was like, you know, I'm sure the Jets coaching staff isn't happy with that one. It's not on Zach Wilson. Like as a result, one one of the pieces of protection he thought he had wasn't there and he took you know, blitzer right in the face. And that's just, sometimes it is on the player. So it felt like it just, if you were ever hopeful after a loss, Jags fans, like this is not, they were unprepared. This is not, they came out flat. This is look, they came out prepared from a mental standpoint, but they didn't execute from a physical standpoint. 
that is correctable or more easily correctable than the whole like scrambled egg mess of we just don't know what happened to us. We're going to have to like burn the film and and go to the next week. Overall, I'll give the same message on the Jags that I gave on the Niners. They're going to be fine. Okay. Yeah. Like, don't worry about it. They're yeah, going to be fine. Agree. They're going to make the playoffs. And once they're in the playoffs, like they're talented enough, they can go on a run. But they're going to be fine. Like, the sky is not falling. Just, and San Francisco's a good team. Like yeah, we're seeing this like, like the Ravens. Like, look, Hawks fans had existential crisis after the Ravens game. They're like, "Oh my god, we are not a good football team." And I was like, eh, 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 "You're you're fine, football team." You know, I would say better than average. <laughs> That's a the, really good football team. Though. The Ravens right now, you know, up until that point, we're we're firing on all cylinders on both sides. You just hit a team that was finely tuned, and you know, you don't match up with them very well, and that's the same thing that that happens you know lions fans were like wait wait does this mean we're not going to the super bowl and it's like no it means you ran into a ravens team that was ready to go a little bit for this for the jags fans as well you didn't execute but san francisco also came fully back and they are a they're an elite team when they're fully back again don't don't put too much stock in it just chalk it up to hey they're a better team and they're a good team uh speaking of good team I'll tell you what, the sky was falling in Minnesota early in the year. But they've now won five in a row. They've won six out of their last seven. If memory serves, they have the longest winning streak in the NFL right now. I think I don't think anybody's above five. No, I think they're and, they're riding a five-game win streak. So and that's with Josh Dobbs and mostly without Justin Jefferson, right? So I, I don't I don't know what God Kevin O'Connell prays to, but boy, he sure is favored by said deity. Cause this is two years in a row now where, where you look at the Vikings on paper and it's like, I don't know how they're winning, but they're doing it. And and they're getting contributions from, from really everybody at this point, you know, Ty Chandler, you know, uh, gave him big contributions on the ground in this one, just kind of grinding it out over and over and over, keeping on, keeping them on schedule. Their average third down was six yards in this game, which is manageable. Like it's super manageable. Nine out of their 15 third downs were, were six yards or less. Um, and so Chandler was huge in this one. Josh Dobbs making plays with his legs to convert a few first downs. And of course, making enough big time throws, especially to TJ Hawkinson. Like it, there was no one aspect of this Vikings team that was super dominant, but they got contributions from everywhere as a team. And the fact that they can win these tough games as a team is just, it's its one of the best stories in football uh, made even better by the fact that Dobbs has only been there for like two weeks and he's two and zero as a starter. The Dobbs story is one of the best. I mean, if you take the full cycle of where he was in the preseason, where he ended up in week one, where he is now, there's not a better story, I don't think, in the NFL going this year. And Dobbs looking as comfortable in this offense as he is, as he has, not having been there a full two weeks is, again, both things. It's a massive credit to Josh Dobbs. We we know about his intelligence. His ability to process information and turn that into a functional result is exceptional. He looked not lost. Um, there were a lot of stories last week about, you know, getting the cadence on the sideline for the first time before you went on the field, like all kinds of logistical things that happen when you get traded and, and thrown into the fire. But this week, a completely different picture. 
And again, a credit to O'Connell and his staff that they could manage that fire hose of information in a way to get him looking that comfortable in, you know, sub 10 days. And the other, the flip side is the same one we talked about with CJ Stroud at the top, which is it's an indictment of other teams. Like you got a basically a street free agent available starter for 10 days and he's producing numbers like this, your staff's had two and a half years and has a starter that is more well-regarded than that, and you can't put up these numbers like at all, not even once this season, it is both things. A credit to Dobbs and O'Connell for sure, and an indictment of lots of other teams that roll out hot garbage on offense every week who've had way more stability and, quote-unquote, on paper, way more talent to work with. I also want to to give credit. It's going to sound weird. I want to give credit to the Cardinals for this. And and there was a there was a soundbite that went kind of semi-viral of like Dobbs talking about the trading process, where like the Cardinals mm. told him he wasn't going to be traded, and then he was traded out of nowhere and everything like that. Um, the reason why the Cardinals did that was as a favor to Dobbs right his agent was working on it but like they did it as a favor to Dobbs because they knew Kyler was coming back like they knew Kyler was going to play so what better way to give Dobbs you know more exposure so that he can honestly this year is going to make Dobbs money for the next like seven eight years like he's going to be in the league forever now because of this year right so the Cardinals were doing him a favor because they're like we're going to send you to Minnesota where they got a good offensive line they got weapons you can show out you might be able to go on a playoff run in the NFC and then you're fucking set for life dude rather than sitting on the bench in Arizona for a team that's going to be drafting in like the top five like I, I understand the the it doesn't sound good to say oh we're not trading you and then we're trading you but that was the best thing they ever did for Dobbs was to get him out of there and into a situation like Minnesota where he can make a hell of a lot more money over the next 10 years of his life by being there. I would hundred percent agree. And there's so much that gets said uh, in the drafting process in the trading process and the contract process, the business side of the NFL. We know what coaches and GMs say a lot of times is hundred percent opposite from what's going to happen a week later. Oh no, we're definitely not firing the coach a week later. He's out on his butt. Like that's just, part of the business it's it's not great but there are reasons i don't think they're necessarily good reasons a lot of time but there are reasons that the business is done that way and it's done that way everywhere this is not an arizona thing this is an nfl thing and i would agree that he is setting himself up with his play with his demonstrated ability for as long as he wants to play in the nfl he's going to be able to do it probably not as a starter but that doesn't matter that is a that is a good gig to get if you can get it guy that can come in and win you a couple of games, three games when your starters hurt is very, very valuable in this league. Dobbs is at that level or certainly above. He's like borderline starter at this point. And there's not enough of those guys. There's a lot of, there's a lot of teams, the NFL that lost games yesterday where I'm like, would they have won that with Josh Dobbs? And the answer is yes on most of them. So yeah, I would agree. I want to talk about Hawkinson because he is putting in work this year and actually in going back and watching this game again, some of the things the announcers brought up, I was like, really? I went back and checked. And yes, those are true. So yesterday alone, 11 for 134 and a touchdown. 
but 71 and 685 with four touchdowns already this year. And that's somebody was like, he's at 650 yards for the year. And I was like, it's week 10. What? So I looked it up. His projected stats for the year put him at 121 catches, big exclamation point after that one, for 1,158 yards and seven TDs. Now the TD number down a little bit, but it might be higher than that with as much as Dobbs is favoring him in the office in the offense. He's a favorite target right now, especially over the middle. Um, and those are like, we need to just talk about those numbers for a minute. Those are bonkers numbers. That's edging into the top 15 seasons receiving all time by a tight mm-hmm. end. If he hits that number or higher, he's going to be at worst, like 15th all time for receiving season by a tight end. That's, that's rare air. We're talking about the, Tony Gonzalez is the world, you know, the prime Gronk years, like tight ends don't typically hit that number. And if you're talking about being in the top 15 all time, like the TJ Hawkinson trade, it's one of those rare trades where it works out. Like the lions weren't going to pay him. They end up go out and draft Laporta and have him at a much more controlled salary. The Vikings get him and they feature him. Like they use the hell out of him, which is, you know, look, we can, you know, cough, cough, Atlanta, like focus on teams that aren't using their talent at the top <laughs> level, but like the Vikings are using the hell out of Hawkinson and he is rewarding their investment. And it's, it is one of those trades you look at and go, well, everybody got better. Like, okay, cool. Let's roll. If he does hit that pace of 121 catches, by the way, that would be the most by a tight end in NFL history. Right now, the record uh, is 116 by Zach Ertz. Uh, so, there's there's decent chance at history here in Minnesota. Uh, also, I will say one more note on Hawkinson. I don't know um, how much physical therapy he has to do on his back every single week, <laughs> but I I can't I can't tell you how many catches I've seen from Hawkinson this year where he's like running down the seam against cover two and and uh, Dobbs hit him for a touchdown on that ball this week. He, beautiful ball by the way against cover two in the red zone. Got a touchdown out of it. But I can't tell you how many times I've seen Hawkinson run that route this year and just get fucking detonated by a safety coming coming like right behind him, just hits him right in the the middle of the spine every single week, dude. Like he's he's got to live in the cold tub at this point. But to his credit, he gets out there every single week and he catches well, you know seven eight more balls every single week and gets absolutely nailed every single week and gets I, right back up. I, it's not just a Hawkinson thing. Like we saw the one on Thursday night with Hayden Hurst. He caught that ball and took a defender like right below the ribs. And it just kind of folded him half like a 30 degree angle. Like, and he was out for a couple, like he went down, you know, to a knee walked off. He was only gone for like two plays and he came back and that's like a, you know, 210 pound safety. I think it was brisker, like hit him right below the ribs, full shot. Like this happens to tight ends all around the league every week. And it is not pretty. Did you see the shot that Tank Dell took? Yeah. Oh, (laughs) well, he's pissing blood tonight because good God. Yeah. He got destroyed. This is the mini rabbit hole of the week. Did you see the blindside (laughs) block that Tillman laid? Uh, The, the, the Browns receiver on the, when Deshaun was rolling out. Yeah, I did. Okay. Should have been called as a blindside block. Let's be honest. That should be a crushed him though. (laughs) erased him like and these plays happen in every game usually away from the action all season long and it is a rough physical grind. I mean like 
neither one of those guys was quote unquote involved in the play. Doesn't matter. You're taking some of the heaviest physical contact there is on plays where you're not featured or, you know, you're uh, running back getting completely run over by a defensive tackle trying to do a bliss pickup. And, you know, these are not plays that go on the stat sheet, but they take a toll. Um, I do want to mention a couple things about the Saints before we get out of this one. Um, You know, obviously the the Vikings are going to bring a lot of pressure because they're the Vikings. Still was a lower blitz rate in this game than we're used to for them. Only only 36%. Right. Only the 10th highest in the NFL. We're used to them being the highest every single week. Yeah, at like uh, 60. Yeah, like, yeah, this was like half their normal blitz rate. Still got a bunch of pressures. Uh, but specifically, I want to bring up our guy, A.T. Perry, getting his first touchdown. Uh, also, maybe his first... Was his first catch, like career catch? Yeah, his he got his first catch uh, down the left side. That was surprising to me that it was his first catch as a pro. I assumed that he had a catch at some point uh, in the first 10 weeks. Uh, hasn't worked out that way. So when he caught that ball and I was watching the replay, and they were like, ah, it's his first catch in the league. And I was like, what? Oh, I mean, congratulations, but what? That seems crazy. And, you know, not even quarter and a half later, he ends up catching his first touchdown. So both first catch and first touchdown in this one. And it was the most Jameis touchdown ever, oh, right? Because because you're watching him, he's going out to his left, and and you could see it on the broadcast. Like you see, At Perry's all alone, but like there's a DB who's like, is he gonna do it? Is he gonna do it? And you're watching, you're like, Jameis, don't don't you don't do it. <laughs> he's like, I'm gonna do it, Jameis. No, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> he, he rips it, and At pays it off on the jump ball. But like you're watching the whole time, going, no, 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 no. Yeah, it's the goofy meme. It is the live personification of the goofy meme. I'll fucking do it again. Like, and he's going to do it again. It's the most Jameis performance ever in relief. Like, Derek Carr goes down, Jameis comes in, and you're going to get the same thing with Jameis all the time. He is a great passer, and he is going to push the ball down the field, and you're going to get some electric plays out of that. Like, Chris Olave came alive after Jameis came in the game. And, you know, you're going to see it. And fans are going to be like, why haven't we been playing this guy? And then the picks come, and literally the James James Winston relief stint in this one was the perfect James like encapsulation of who he is as a player. Push the ball down the field, bunch of big plays, bunch of yards, two touchdowns and two picks, like all within you know less than an entire game. And it's like, yep, that's James in a nutshell. Like he just isn't yeah, going to change at this point. That's why I love him, though. Like I I love that he's just unapologetically himself. Like, I hope we get 15 years of just Jameis relief games because it's the best, it's the best, like, <laughs> second half you're ever going to see entertainment wise. And I, I just love him so much. I really do. It's going to put you on the edge of your seat in both ways. The yes, 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 and the no, no, no are going to be pretty much equal, but you, you will be engaged. <laughs> it's must see TV. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned the, the Tillman block from the Browns, which is as good a segue as we're ever going to get. Uh, that I can come up with on the spot for getting into to Browns Ravens. So I, I want Browns to stick Browns fans to stick with me while I kind of go through this, right? Cause there's a lot of nuance to discussing the Browns as a team, as well as the Browns offense. And within that, with, when discussing Deshaun Watson, so that play uh, where Tillman lit up the Ravens edge rusher happened in the first half, right? And when you go back and you watch the all 22 and I might, I might even put up, put in the all 22 um, just as, as I'm talking about this, but it was kind of a, 
it was like a design rollout with a corner post where, you know, Deshaun is supposed to be rolling out to his right and they're going to flash like he's going to throw the the deep corner. And then they 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 come back on the post against a middle field close safety and against a middle field close safety. Like if it was too high, he was going to take it, you know, kind of super high on the angle, go straight to the end zone. If it's if it's a middle field close safety, he's going to flatten it down. Right. And then kind of like sit in the middle underneath that safety, because obviously there's going to be, you know, another basically like hook defender that's going to be coming from the other side. So there's like this little window underneath the safety inside the corner. And before you get to the hang defender, that's going to be coming from the other side. And that's where, that's where you're supposed to hit it is, you know, okay. You pick up the block from Tillman, you're rolling out as the, as the receiver's breaking inside, you're supposed to be reading the positioning of the safety to know where the route's going to be. And then you, you rip it. And he didn't rip it. And that was kind of the story of the first half for this Browns offense was they kept dialing up all these shot plays that just weren't working for a myriad of reasons. You know, there was some that Deshaun just straight up missed down the side, like threw it out of bounds, like missed it by four yards, you know? Yeah. Foul uh, ball. And then there was foul ball. Right. And then there was the other one where it's like, he had it in the middle, like could have gotten to the red zone and then just didn't pull the trigger and then took off and, incomplete like they had five total attempts of 20 plus yards as a team if you take out the pj walker hail mary uh which they brought in pj walker to throw the hail mary i think just because of deshaun's injury but if you take that out and just look at the four balls of 20 plus yard depth from deshaun they didn't hit on any of them and if you're looking in the in just the first half stats his average depth of target was 15.1 yards which is insane uh, like that's like a Josh Allen. That's more than a Josh Allen number, actually. Like they were just bombing it down the field, and they weren't hitting anything for, for again a bunch of different reasons. It was inaccuracy. It was not seeing the field super well down the field, uh, and so they were six of twenty-two for seventy-nine yards. And then you know throw in just the the freakishly crazy good play uh, from Kyle Hamilton for the pick six, which wasn't honestly wasn't really Deshaun's fault. Like that's just a great defensive play, but all the other stuff of just, you know, trying to be aggressive and and not being efficient with it. Like they got into a hole because of that, because they weren't good enough as a team to be an aggressive pass game against this Ravens defense. Like as a team, Deshaun included, they were not good enough to do that. So what did they do coming out in the second half? They acknowledged like, Hey, we probably can't throw it more than 10 yards down the field. Like our, our quarterback's injury is clearly affecting his accuracy. He's all over the place. He's clearly not reading, you know, down the field super well either, or else he would have pulled the trigger on that one in the first half. So let's just keep it simple. We're going to be like a, just a, a, a quick passing game. We're going to rely on yak. You know, we're going to be efficient with it. We're just going to get completions. We're going to run the ball and we're going to trust our skill position guys to put the offense on their back and help Deshaun out because Deshaun needed help in this game. And they fucking showed up. Okay. They, David Njoku had 58 receiving yards in this game. He had 61 after the catch. Like he would not go down. Jerome Ford would not go down. None of these receivers would go down on first contact. And so when you're looking at, at the, the comeback performance for the Browns, I don't, necessarily attribute it to Deshaun 
Like the 20-yard run, obviously great play, but his average depth of target was less than six yards. Like their 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 yak percentage was like through the roof. 87% of their their throws went short of the sticks. They had two completions that went further than eight yards past the line of scrimmage. So it wasn't necessarily like a high degree of difficulty for Deshaun, but their team, like as a team, as an offense, as a unit, they are so physical, so tough, so talented that they were able to help out their quarterback who was struggling and get the job done against an elite Ravens defense. So I think there's two things that can be true. And I'm, and I'm trying to be nuanced here because I know Browns fans are very defensive of Deshaun Watson overall. I think two things can be true. The Browns as a team are amazing. As a unit, they are amazing. But let's be honest, there's a lot of quarterbacks who could have had an average depth of target of 5.9 yards yesterday and and gotten it out and let their guys do a lot of work after the catch. Like There's a lot of quarterbacks who could have done that. So I want to credit the Browns for winning as a team and having a very good team effort. But I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and say that that quarterback performance, especially when you factor in the first half where they couldn't hit Dick 10 plus yards after the line of scrimmage, they couldn't, they could not push the ball down the field largely because of Deshaun. I'm not going to sit here and lie to you and say that that was like a $230 million and three first round pick kind of performance. Like they need him to be better to get the most out of this team because they can't. They can't do what they did every single week. Like they can't just be a yak based offense every single week. They will not get to where they want to be if they try to do that every single week. It worked this week and it was a great team win because the team is amazing. But the quarterback has to be better. Like I, I think both things can be true. And I want Browns fans to not get hyper defensive about that. Like it's okay to praise the team while acknowledging the quarterback was just okay. They can get hyper defensive if they want to. That's that's the that's the basis of being a fan. It's short for fanatic. I get it. There is a reality here where 15 yards of average depth of target for the first half is silly. Like that would lead the league. There is not an A dot that high for any quarterback. Really good ones are 12, 13, maybe even 14 yards. And also ups your degree of difficulty, whether or not you're dealing with an injury. Like the farther you go down the field, the lower your percentages are. That makes sense to a lot of fans. They get that. And I will also say Deshaun played better in a lot of the small things that a quarterback needs to do in the second half. He was much better moving in the pocket than he has been in weeks. His vision and ability to complete that short stuff was still better than it's been in a few weeks. So once they sort of dialed that game plan back in the second half, he still executed it better than he's been executing in, in previous weeks. I'm with you. This was a team win. The Browns won this as a team and it was with effort. Every time I looked up another Browns player was twisting out of contact, running a guy over Najoku and Jerome Ford were the two leaders, but Everybody was doing it. I can't tell you how many times in this game I thought, nope, they're stopped. They're not going to make the sticks. Oh, he twisted loose and got it. You know, he ran that guy over and got it. He extended the ball before he was down and got it. Without all that stuff, as close as this game was, they don't win the game. And that is a team sort of striving and driving kind of effort. And the team is playing very well. We've we've lauded the defense as 
one of the top, if not the top defense in the NFL. Doesn't really matter which statistic you pull. They could be one, they could be two. That means you're elite if you're arguing they're in the top spot. And they, you know, they held it down this game. They they played very, very well. They smushed the run with the exception of, you know, Keaton Mitchell doing Keaton Mitchell things on three carries. Other than that, there were like 11 other carries. And, you know, they were there were 13 non-QB rushes that amounted to less than three yards a carry. And we've come in saying, hey, Monken's offense is amazing. The rushing stats are amazing. Like Brown said, uh-uh. We talked about the Browns' pass rush being an X factor. Miles Garrett and Zedaria Smith both had five pressures apiece, came out with, you know, two and a half sacks combined. Like that was a thing. It made Lamar throw. He didn't get to hit very many, very many balls in this one. He completed 13 for 233 yards. So when he hit, he hit big. And by the way, he's still slinging it. Like I know they lost this game, but they scored so, sometimes uh, to their detriment. Like that that interception. Oh, the, the, was, the wasn't choice <laughs> was not great. But when you look at the way he throws the ball right now, especially in the first half, was in sharp contrast to how Deshaun was throwing the ball in the first half. He's just ripping it flat lasers. Like he's, I, I want to say it looks like see it throw it, but it's not. He's throwing anticipation throws, but he's throwing them flat. And yeah. it's just this he's, little sidearm, like, cannon, man. Bam, and he's like, putting it right give on. Lamar, they don't give him credit yeah. for how good his arm is. Yeah, with yeah. a flick, he can get it there on a line. And again, Brown's credit here. This is not a oh, Ravens, you know, handed him the game. That's not what I'm saying. Is Lamar played really well, put up enough points to win. Brown's defense was still good enough to basically completely shut the rundown and smother the passing game because we've said all year that this secondary is the best secondary in football and they showed it again. And again, without that, they don't win like three more points, five more points from the Ravens. They don't get to make a comeback in the second half here. So this is a team win for the Browns that they earned through effort and determination and adjustment at the half. Stefanski and his staff said, "Mm, okay, I just don't think that's going to be the thing today. We're going to have to change up our plan fairly significantly. Deshaun, we still need you to execute. And he did at a better level. We can still have that conversation and say, and he needs to be able to do a lot more, whether it's through healing up or whether it's through, you know, different play calling when they do take those shots down the field, because I'm with you. If they don't have that part of their playbook, there's a lot of teams that they won't beat down the stretch luckily for them this week's game is the Steelers and they're hosting the Steelers in Cleveland and I'll tell you what outside of Joey Porter there ain't no corners in Pittsburgh that uh that I don't feel comfortable taking shots against like Joey's great everybody else in that secondary you know especially with Mika being banged up everybody else in that secondary I'm like bombs away dude <laughs> like just if you're gonna rip it like, this, <laughs> this, this is your week this yeah. is the one like as long as they hold up against TJ Watt and High Smith and all them which will we'll, like that's a whole different that's a whole different uh challenge right of of staying alive for two and a half seconds so you can make those throws but there will be separation that, that much I can confidently say. There will be separation galore against the Steelers secondary uh, for everybody not named Joey Porter, at least. Yeah, I want to credit the Browns offensive line, which is always good. Bill Callahan does an amazing job with that line. It's the When we talk about a Kevin Stefanski run game, a big part of that is Bill Callahan and his line coaching. And their guards got to the second level against the Ravens. And there's... <laughs> 
because they have really good guards, not everybody's going to be able to replicate that success. But we've been, again, preaching that, you know, the gospel of Mike McDonald and his ability to adapt. But one thing the defense wasn't able to overcome, especially in the second half yesterday, was the guards climbing to the second level and picking off linebackers. Like they haven't had that yet this year. Their defensive line's taking care of that for them. The Browns guards got loose and got on linebackers at the second level, like routinely. And you saw Jerome Ford look very, very good because of that. So huge credit to the guards. They're two of the best guards in in the NFL. So not surprising, but really cool to see him again. You say put the offense on the back of all the skill position players. I think in Cleveland's case, that certainly includes their guards. Those guys were were difference makers. So at least they have a chance to hold up against Pittsburgh's defensive line. As good as we know they are, they are going to get theirs. But if I'm matching up offensive lines to try and hold them in check, Brown's line would be pretty high up there. I know there's a lot of nuance to this discussion, but and I know people are going to just skip right over it and just get to the comments and be like, well, you That's said right. blah, blah, blah. It's like, I, we're, we're right. trying here, people. We're trying to flame throwing. Here it comes realistic on both sides about this thing and, and, and talk football without just being blind. You know, like, I think, I think it's a very nuanced sport and it should be talked about in nuanced ways. And it can't just be, rah 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 it can be acknowledging what's great about a team while also acknowledging what is uh frustratingly mid about a team and i think i don't know am, am i making sense am i make i i'm trying to basically <laughs> stem the tide of browns fans that are just they are boy they are bought in ej they are really that, fucking bought in hey, as we've come I, to know if you are if you are a browns fan at this point you are distilled down uh you are you are hardcore at this point. And, you know, like many fans, you live and die with your team. We understand that. And that is from fan bases all around the league. And I would say, uh, again, that quotient of Browns fans that truly live and die with the Browns is as high as, as any other team in the league. And and we're going to hear about it and that's fine, but that is still not going to make us sit here and say, Oh yeah, everything's great. Like it's all rosy. You're, you're on a roll. Um, because this would be a very boring podcast if that's the way we treated every fan base. Miles Garrett's great, though. We could say that every week. We'll be, we'll be right. You know, yeah, and, can't go wrong praising Miles Garrett. Hundred <laughs> percent. Every true. time we talk about the Browns, just be like, Miles is really good. <laughs> and if we want somebody Everything from the else, offensive uh... side, we could say Elijah Moore. Like Elijah Moore being the glue guy, I can just say as an Elijah Moore stand from when he was drafted that never worked out with the Jets, like. He was the glue guy on this offense this week. And I was like, go, Elijah, you're, you know, you're getting meaningful snaps and you are doing things that kept that offense going. Was he the star? No. Big three of Amari Cooper and Njoku and, and Jerome Ford really were. But there was Elijah Moore making four or five catches for some key first downs and, you know, touchdown. Like, go, Elijah Moore. There's your rah-rah right. moment for Cleveland for the week. <laughs> I think I think we've I think we've danced across these eggshells long enough, don't you think? Yeah, they're powdered. Why don't we, why don't, why don't we get out of here? Uh, we have a, a Thursday stream to prepare for because we got uh, the other AFC North teams: Ravens, Bengals uh, Thursday night. Make sure to come back for that. Um, also, want to shout out homage for you know being a, a great clothing partner for us. If you're looking for any sort of NFL gear or coming soon any bootleg gear. That will also be on homage. Uh, you know, our, our patrons have made their choices for which bootleg merch they want to be available. And 
we happen to agree with every single choice they made. So that worked out great for us. Uh, that will be up on homage very soon. But to rep your team, of course, they have the NFL license. So they have a bunch of different stuff for every single NFL franchise. Anything you buy from homage at the link down below, we get a cut of. So uh, we appreciate all of your support. We also appreciate the support of our executive producers over on the Patreon tier that just voted for our merch marat consti andrew liam connor and mike l appreciate all of you once again all right ej it's 12 50 i'm gonna go drink something <laughs> i'm gonna go eat something so we're on different ends of the spectrum but i should mention we had a suggestion uh for a bengals bomb for the stream bengals bomb yeah it's jaeger and orange crush you know, on paper, that sounds not good, but I bet you it's kind of probably good. I think they might cancel each other out a little bit, so we we might try a Bengals bomb on on the stream. We'll see. Who comes up with that? I I'm, again, I no provenance. Like I, I'm not in charge, uh, but I did look it up, and I was like, huh. Sneaky, that might be okay. And I bet it's better. Than I mean, Malort it can't be way. worse than pickle yeah. vodka and Malort. So like, right. again, my standards are pretty freaking low here each. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I'll just say, yeah, Ohio fans or Ohio football fans are deranged people. Yes. And they terrify me. So we'll, we'll make sure to say nice things about the Bengals on Thursday. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we'll see you guys in a couple of days. Take care.